Evisceration? What does that mean? It's like gutting a fish. First you make a long slit, then you take out everything that isn't meat. You know, the heart, the lungs, the intestines, and so forth. Then you fill it all back up with stuffing, sew it back together with one of these. Maybe I should get started now. No, wait. There's plenty of time. You said this was your favorite book. Don't you want to hear a story? Is it a love story? Yeah. Well, no, not really. But it's a really good one. You like it a lot. We're gonna go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. Hey guys, it's Terry here. And uh, um, we have a, a special guest on. Uh, it's someone who's going to um, figure out the math that it will take to cook Terry and I both. Um, and that's what's going to happen during this episode. So we got got uh, got Steve, who is my co-host from Evasion of the Podcast. Uh, he's come on. He's come on the show here uh, with a, a nice fresh set of stabbing needles. So welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, by the way, it's uh, 13 hours to cook both of you. Just let me you know. <laughs> That's, well, I've, I've been eating raw onions and potatoes all day today, so I'm hoping that will help out. <laughs> I like that. It's already pre-stuffed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're going to be uh, talking about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, uh, uh, this evening. Uh, I just want to thank Richard uh, last week for coming on to talk about Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. That was a really good talk, really fun episode. Um and yeah, it was just, it was a good talk. And so we're taking a little bit of a detour because it is Halloween week. Um, as much as the Twilight Zone is a great thing to get into, uh, you know, we wanted to watch more of a traditional like anthology horror film. And this is one that has been circling um, both of the respective shows that that, uh, that I do here with with both uh, Strange Highways and Invasion of the Podcast. Because uh, S- Stephen mentioned it to me last year because we had done a, a bit of a, a month of anthology films and you 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 pitched it then, and I remember at the time it was before Terry came on this show, and he was like, "I would really like to talk about Tales from the Dark Side." So I was torn between my husbands of where the movie was going to show up. So, um, sorry, Steve, I flipped a coin and you lost. That's okay. I'm a good winner. I'm a loser. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so so yeah, that's that's where we're at with this. So, but because uh, you guys were both like excited uh, to talk about this, and it was on your radar. Um, like we don't have to go about the film in depth, but what, why, why was this the one for you guys to say, this is, this is an anthology film that we definitely need to talk about. Uh, Terry, you can go first now that I've talked to husband number one. All right. So this is one of the films that when I was a child, uh, it was kind of always there. It was always on, um, my growing up with my grandparents and uh, a couple of my uncles and that. Um, horror was always in my house, so always watching anthology horror, um, Tales from the Crypt, 
lots of tales in the crypt uh creep show was in heavy rotation in my house pretty much anything george romero touched that was on in my house often so this being pretty much the brainchild of george romero um this was definitely in in, in heavy rotation in my house so i've always enjoyed this film and i think there is a great cast to it and it still holds up so i love this movie and and, and um husband uh, number one <laughs> uh so yeah i i always forget that i'm uh older than both of you um so i was i was 15 when this came out um i have a very fond memory of seeing it in the theater uh the weekend it opened ironically uh at the time I, well, it's not ironic. I don't know why I said that. I grew up in Sandusky, Ohio, which for those of you who don't know what Sandusky, Ohio is, it's essentially Cedar Point, which is an amusement park and then people live around it. Um, but every year, uh, the high school band would play opening day at Cedar Point. That was uh, May 5th, 1990. And uh, that day it rained, so... Being in the band, we played, and then it was like, well, we don't want to stay at Cedar Point. It's raining. Let's go to the movies. And the movie we picked was uh, Tales from the Dark Side. And it's been a perennial favorite for me for a very long time. And I, I, I think that it was probably within the last 10, 15 years that I, um, I don't want to say revisited or rediscovered it, but it was one that I just always kept coming back to. And uh, with the DVD release of it, and now the Blu-ray release that came from Scream Factory earlier this year. Um, it's just a, it's a perfect anthology movie. And I, I say that as somebody who, and this may be fighting words, but I may actually like it more than Creepshow. And I love Creepshow. So we could talk about that once we get into the nitty gritty. Okay. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm I kind of like the same place with you guys in the sense like, uh, uh, for whatever reason, like I, I grew up watching horror movies, but like there was a, there was a time where I kind of got my head up my own ass where I would start being like, like there's like, you know, good horror movies. And then there's just like, you know, whatever. Like I would kind of like kind of high road some of the stuff and be like, you know, the exorcist is an important film, which it is, but you could also like goopy stuff too. Like I, I the older I get, the more I realize you can like horror can be fun, whatever. This felt like it was like a, a tier above a lot of some, like a, a lot of other things. And it, in watching it again, which I've seen this film multiple times, uh, there's a lot here that still works really, really well. Um, maybe not cat puppetry, but everything else works really, really well in this movie. And um, I think this is still a good high watermark for what an anthology film can be. So, yeah, I've been I've been wanting to talk about this for a while, and this was actually a really wonderful opportunity to get you guys together to talk about a thing that we all love. So, hooray! Here we are. <laughs> yeah, that we're, that, I think we're both on the same track where it's like, I don't know how much more we can say about how much we love this film. But, you know, I think uh, once we dig into it, we're going to expose how much more we love this film. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let me just, I'll just do day and date stuff because that is uh, what we do here on the show on Strange Highways. Uh, so release date, uh, ruined by Steve talking about May 4th, 1990. Took my thunder for that. Um, number one film that I, I don't know why you guys didn't go watch pretty woman instead of this. I know. I understand why you watch this instead of pretty woman. That's that to me is no contest. Um, number one song was uh, nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor. Um, I looked up 1990s, like just the billboard, like top stuff, man, 1990 was kind of a shit year in terms of like music. 
but whatever. Anyway, um, but the the perennial uh, song by Wilson Phillips that is now the staple of every, every karaoke bar, Hold On, would come out June 9th. So I guess maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, um, so uh, not on this date, but later in the month of May, just to kind of give you guys uh, like, oh, crap, we're all old. Aside from the fact this movie's 30 years old, um, May 22nd, Microsoft released Windows 3.0. I don't need any more reminders that I'm getting old. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah, I, I, 1990 was, you know, a long time ago and it's just going to get further away. So, oh, yeah, that's, yeah I, that's... I don't have any like poignant things to offer other than I'm an old man. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Terry, do you have anything about, like, I don't know if you looked up day and date stuff. If not, like, I, I thought I was expecting you to. Uh, we can get right into, uh, like, you know, I, I think we can talk about the cast and crew, like, all together as opposed to doing it per segment. Because I don't think there's really anything hiding here like we did when we covered, um, what was it, Campfire Tales? Right, yeah. I, I think we're good to move on to uh, okay. the next stage of our conversation here. So. Okay. Um, so, yeah, uh uh, going in the cast and crew for this um our director here is uh john harrison um he did some of the episodes of the sh- of the show and um three episodes of creep show which is still in production now he's gonna he's actually working on some new episodes for the new season as well so that's exciting um I, i'd be remiss to not say that um our producer on this was rick rubenstein um if it wasn't for him i don't think that this would ever seen the light of day um he he was pretty much the pioneer for, you know, the show and continuing on through uh, George Romero's efforts to make the creep show um, show that he was trying to do. So without him, I don't think we would have ever seen the show or the movie. Okay. And then, yeah. So, I mean, it, the guy is amazing. Uh, he worked with Romero throughout the 70s and 80s uh, and 90s, honestly. So, uh, big, big name when it comes to horror. Um, so, um, you know, I'll also be also remiss if I didn't say anything about makeup here. Um, K and B did the makeup. Uh, so that's, uh, Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero and Howard Burr. Um, and then film, uh, the, uh, makeup consultant on this movie was Dick Smith. So another, uh, amazing talent who was able to guide, um, can be through the makeup process here and it definitely shows throughout the film yeah well and here i didn't realize this about um john harrison is that he's also a composer and did uh like the music for creep show and all and and uh day of the dead like and i that that score like not that i'm saying the movies don't have like you know iconic but that that beginning music to that movie is just haunting um so it's it's it it's not unusual to find like you know writers and directors I don't always find composers and directors like do it like a person doing the same job. So that's kind of unique, but the guy clearly is um, multi multi-talented. So I was, I was happy to learn about that. Yeah. It was exciting that he, he was able to kind of mix in his own little bit of music into this movie as well. Cause he did the lover's vow um, score and um, actually in production, they told him that he was going to be like overworking himself if he tried to do it. But he did so. Um, so, do you? How did you want to do cast? Did you just want to like steamroll through everybody here real quick? Yeah, and Steve, if you have anything you want to mention uh, in passing, please speak up. Uh, I just wanted to mention uh, that I I love 
the uh, Day of the Dead score. Um, I have a Halloween playlist that I listen to uh, every year, and uh, that main theme from Day of the Dead is uh, a part of it. I, I I love the sound of that movie. I mean, I, again, there's so many great things to pick from from Romero's catalog, um, and this might also be fighting words, but I feel like as I've gotten older, particularly living in the time that we do now, uh, Day of the Dead may actually be my favorite Romero zombie film. And I know for some people that's heresy, but I, I, be, I appreciate it more and more. And I think that score is just a beautiful score. Um, and uh, he did a great job with it. And I did see that uh, same point that Terry was making that, uh, you know, he was interested in doing the score and they were like, you got to like step back a little bit. Cause you got a whole lot of other stuff going on as well. So I can only imagine how much pressure that would have put on him if he had to do the entire movie score. But uh, yeah, very talented guy. Yeah. So um, yeah. Who do we, so cast, who do we got here? A bunch of nobodies from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, real quick, the first, uh, first actress that we see off the bat in the movie is Deborah Harry um, of Blondie fame. Um, she was also in video drones and uh, drone and uh, body bags as well. And then um, next we would see Matthew Lawrence, um, a young Matthew Lawrence as Timmy, um, Mrs. Doubtfire and Boys Meets, Boy Meets World. And then um, we get into our first story. Um, so we'll see um, that Christian Slater is in this. Yes. Steve Buscemi. This is the lot 249, right? This is the, the first part. Yes, I'm okay. sorry. Uh, lot two four nine, um, and um, yeah. So, Steve Buscemi, um, Robert uh, Sedgwick, Sedgwick. yeah. yeah. Uh, Julianne Moore in her first big film debut, and then yeah. So that's that's who I have listed. I don't know if you had anybody else listed for that story. Line. No, but I'm just going to ask you guys: uh, Was Steve Buscemi ever young? Like I. <laughs> Even even here, it's like he was younger and like, I guess, like, you know, of the age to be a college student. But even then, like, I just wonder if he was just born with an old man's face because I just I love him, but he's never looked young to me. It's funny I, you, you know, say I, that. I, I, take so, it away, Steve. I'm sorry. No, no. I was just going to remark that I upon my most recent rewatch, I was like, God, look how young he looks. there. <laughs> so I, I have the opposite reaction. That's all. I mean, yeah, he does look. I mean, he does look younger. You're right, but like, just, just never. He just never looked young. <laughs> I think that's what I feel about him. So, yeah, uh, yeah, Julia Moore. Um, I I adore her. Um, and it's just, I. It's also funny to me to think that both her and Bushimi would end up in uh, the Big Lebowski later, which is another movie I, I love. And I uh, this makes you wonder. It's like, hey, remember that time on Tales from the Dark Side, the movie? And then they just don't talk about it. I have a, a fun little uh, tidbit of knowledge about her role in that story later okay. uh, and the connection with um, the big Lebowski too. So, um, but yeah, I'll save that for later. Um, so next, our next story would be uh, the cat from hell. And the, we got uh, uh, David Johansson. Um, he, I, I have to point it out real quick. He was a lead singer of the New York dolls. Just got to put that out there. This dude, he he's a stage actor as well, and it was really a wonderful treat to see him in this. Um, he's Buster then, Poindexter, uh, right? Like the guy that sings "Hot, Hot, Hot." Yep, that's okay. him. Yeah, it was good to see him not like 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 vamp isn't the right word, but play something a little bit more like uh, buttoned down until well until he loses his shit. But yeah, it was it's 
interesting thing to see from him. I dug it. Yeah, I love his role uh, in Scrooge. That's what I was just going to mention. Was is that's probably the other thing people know him from. Yeah, and then a free Jack as well. So, um, but <laughs> people people, <laughs> people know free Jack. I mean, I do. I just <laughs> it's a Christmas I like free tradition. Jack. It's, it, free Jack is Christmas tradition versus Scrooge. You're like, you know what? Hey, you know, I'm just going to watch Free Jack. It has uh, his Mick Jagger <laughs> uh, acting in it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, but it's got Emilio in it. Emilio, so. yeah. Uh, so who else we got here? The, um, the Cat from Hell. Yeah, so it's, uh, next we got William Hickey. Um, Hinky? Uh, Hickey, Hickey. Um, he plays Drogon. Um, we have Alice... Drummond, Drummond. Um, she plays Carolyn. Uh, Doris, Dolores, Sutton plays Amanda. Mark, uh, Margolis. Yeah, Margolis. Yeah, Margolis uh, plays Gage. And yeah, so that's all I had for that. And then there's a kitty. Yeah. Um, so um, with William Hickey, like I remember him best from uh, Christmas Vacation. I, I just that's my favorite role of his is just playing like the, like almost like confirmed, like uh was a grandfather and uncle, the one that had the toupee and ended up like setting fire to stuff. I can't like, remember, but I loved him in that movie. Yeah. He plays the weird old uncle that comes over later and uh, he sets the tree on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so it's awesome. <laughs> He's also in puppet master. So it's what I'd know him from as well. Um, but yeah, yeah it's in our uh, next Sorry. and last story. Well, Steve, were you going to say something about uh, the cast of Cat from Hell? Because I also have one other person I was going to mention. Oh, I just wanted to mention real quick uh, Alice Drummond. Uh, I think the most famous role that she's known for is she's the librarian at the beginning of Ghostbusters. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, perfect. Um, but Mark Magalis, uh, he is um, now better known from being... Um, I, uh, Hector Salamanca and Breaking Bad, and he is a scary dude. Like you would think, a guy that was like playing a character that was um, a stroke victim to sitting in a wheelchair with a single bell to like hit when he wants attention, you'd think that wouldn't be intimidating. But the guy was scary as all get out. And then he's in uh, Better Call Saul, and he actually got to like act like like story wise pre-stroke terrifying so to see him here i'm just like oh god it's it's a uh, salamanca that cat's not gonna make it he's got to be up there in age man because um one of his uh credits i found he was in scarface as well so i mean he's got to be pretty up there in age at this point yeah but terrifying <laughs> <laughs> um all right so our our last store here um lover's vow um we have james remar uh, plays Preston. Uh, people would probably know him best from uh, the Warriors, and uh, he was also in Dexter. And uh, he's currently in Black Lightning, which he's uh, in the production of the new ep- uh, new episodes right now. So that's cool. Um, yeah. And he was uh, actually the the role of Hicks and Aliens to begin with, and they um, they cut him out. Um, and there's still there's still some footage of him in the movie uh, he, uh, with his back turned, but then they brought in um, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Steve, save me. Michael Bean. There you go. Yeah. So Remar was in there originally, and they brought in Michael Bean to, to play the character. That's crazy. I did not know that. I, and huh. something tells me James Remar has had a a um, challenging career at times because I've heard I get the vibe not not that I've heard like no one's calling me like I don't I'm not following like the James Remar hotline or whatever like um but uh, you just get the notion this guy can be difficult to work with sometimes. 
that's just like, I'm not saying that he's a bad guy, but maybe his approach is different. And I'm going to guess that, um, you know, uh, that I, you, whenever you're dealing with, um, oh my gosh, uh, the director of aliens, my, why is my brain falling apart right now? Uh, you know, avatar guy, uh, <laughs> Terminator, James Cameron. James Cameron. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Uh, yep. That's it. We're done now. Um, I'm going to guess that, uh, Cameron has a, a certain set of ways and if someone's not going to follow him, they're not going to be on set much you know, for a very long time. So, but yeah, like, do, I don't do, know if it's so much that he's uh, hard to work with. I mean, he's kind of, op- he's open about it on the Blu-ray from shout factory, which I'll probably mention like six times during this, this podcast, but, uh, there's interview segments with him and, uh, the next person we're probably going to talk about in the cast, but he's very open about the fact that he had a, an alcohol problem back in the day. And he, he talks about like how rough things got for him at one point. And, uh, I think that not that his career was completely dead, but I think at this point in time, he was starting recovery and starting to get back into the good graces, I guess, of, of, you know, folks in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, so he, he's, He's had a bit of a troubled past with addiction. So. Which, then it's un- it's unfortunately kind of funny that they brought out Michael Bean to replace him on Aliens, but whatever. I just, <laughs> oh man, I guess, they, you know, ship's passing in the night. But anyway, um, yeah, who else we got? All right, so uh, next, uh, and I'm going off of the order that IMDB gave me, so um, yeah, we got Aston Weiss, um, he plays Jer, uh, and then Philip uh, Winkowski, uh, plays Maddox, uh, Robert Kling, uh, plays Wyatt, Ray Don Chung, uh, plays the love interest, uh, Carolon or Carolon, Carola, Carola. Yeah, there Carola. we go. I know it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a weird name. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to have to put this one out there at the end because he plays in two segments of the story here. And I'll, um, he plays our creature, um, Michael Deke. Um, he put, he's in two of the segments here, so I'll, okay. We'll get to him, I guess, while we're talking about the stories themselves. Cool. All right. So, yeah, uh, it's, that's cast, uh, crew. I'm sure we'll get more into the individual performances and stuff as we go along here. So, um, yeah, uh, the, the first segment is this call. It, like, I think it's funny that it's actually listed as the wraparound story. Like, they didn't even come up with, like, a name for it. Um, I'm, I'm going to put it on you guys. If you had to name the wraparound, what would you, what would you name it? I, I want, I, you know, just, I, I think there, there should be a fun name for the wraparound. Evisceration. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I can't even, I can't top that. Um, I mean, I was going to say like my dinner with Timmy, but <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't think that the, the evisceration is, is much better. I, so. I mean, like, what about like the kid's table or something? I don't know, but, uh, that just, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, but yeah, so the wraparound is like, you know, we, we see uh, Debbie Harry's character, like just, I, I, I forgot how good this movie looked and I ended up, um, watching this on, uh, uh, Amazon. I just uh, rented it digitally. Um, and I, I forgot, like, this is going to sound, this is going to sound dumb, but I, I, it looks very filmic. Like the cinematography is like very, very on point where it's like, you're, you're watching a movie as opposed to. Um, and I'm sure we could all relate to this is around the time when there was a lot of direct to video horror movies coming out that did not have the same budget or quality, you know? So seeing her like drive this like uh, Jeep or whatever, all over town, waving at people like, um, you know, really, really pretty shots. And I like that it gives a minute for the film to kind of like, um, 
like sink in with like, well, this is normal enough. Where's the turn going to happen? And I like that there was no big like narration. There was no big, um, I don't know. I feel like some of the, sometimes anthology movies like really try to pour it on to let you know that things are going to get weird. Um, but this one kind of, it didn't. And I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Right off the cuff. Um, I, you know, you don't really know what quite is going to be happening in the, the first segment of the movie. You're like, okay, you got this blonde lady. She's going to be making dinner whatever. And it just gets weird because you see the doorknob jiggling, um, to what looks like a, a big ass closet uh, or pantry. And it's like, okay, what's going to happen next year? Like what's going on? Is there a monster behind there? Like, is this lady about to get wiped out or what? So, I mean, it's pretty ambiguous in how it's supposed to start here. Yeah. I just, um, I like that whenever you have this nice, big, beautiful kitchen and you see that, uh, that huge, that huge door, right. That she opens and, well, she's looking at cookies or whatever, but then she goes to bring cookies to whatever's in the pantry. And my question for you, Steve, is would you be easily tricked into a, a person dungeon in a kitchen for chocolate chip cookies? Yes. Yeah, I, I totally would have been. Uh, I, I I think I've talked about on the other podcast, you know, uh, things that I would have done in the Ponderosa that I used to work in. Um, so I, I'm a very much... Uh, 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 if the opportunity strikes. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I would have gotten in like a, a van with a stranger with candy, but like a nice lady who looked like Debbie, Debbie Harry offering the cookies, I probably would have fallen for it. <laughs> and then it, like, you've been like, oh, well, I got like, I, I get like, what, how many hours am I going to cook? Well, <laughs> I could probably have some more cookies. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my point of view would have just been like, well, I'm going to die. I might as well eat as many cookies as I possibly can while I, while I'm still here. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the whole look of that's great. Um, I also like that they kind of imply that because it's like this, like, you know, uh, residential neighborhood, but like with like the big houses and like, you know, with the lawns, like, like, like they're all pushed back from the roadway. It's very, you know, um, like suburbia. So this kid's yelling, it's like, no one's going to hear you kid. You know, like there's not even, there's not even the hope of like, they don't do the tropey thing of like the neighbor checking things out or, you know, it's, it's very lean and mean like this. I mean, I guess pun intended cause they're, you know, Debbie Hayes character is going to cook a child. Um, but yeah, it's it's a wonderful. I don't know. I I don't know if you can get away with that now for for a setup of a story where it's like, yeah, this woman's just going. She's in, she's going to eat a child. Here's your movie, you know. And I think that's wonderful that like it just starts off the rip of like this. This is messed up. And the older I get, the more I realize how messed up it really is. It really is. I mean, like if you're a kid, which I I was when I had first seen this. I, I probably did see it when it first came out on. Um, video and we got it from blockbuster but um you, you don't really understand how creepy this shit is until you get a little older and you're like man it's pretty messed up i don't <laughs> it's like i don't know like i i looking back i'm like who was not watching this kid you know like he's a little too young <laughs> well he's one of the lawrence brothers they all look the same so i'm sure you know like if like if you lose one of them, you got like three of them. They all have the same stupid hair and, and all, and, and, and they could all, they could all go, Whoa, like at the same time. And you wouldn't notice you're missing one. Fair enough. <laughs> I did want to talk real quick about Debbie Harry's performance in it. I think that 
what makes it work is is how good she is in the role. There's not an ounce of irony in the way she's doing it. She's very matter of fact about it. At the beginning of the film, she's even on the phone talking about how they're going to have this party, this dinner party, and like you know, oh you you know you bring the the wine glasses that you have, and I think she mentions her husband. I think it's like Bob and I will just drink out of jelly glasses, I guess. But like she's there's never a point where she's winking at the camera. She's very much matter of fact about it. And she's very believable. Um, and I, I know that she's not known for her acting, but I think that she's just, you know, very good in the role. And I think it's also a credit to the director that, like, again, I, I don't want to use this as an because I love Creepshow, but like Tom Atkins is sort of big as the heavy in the wraparound of Creepshow. With this, it, Debbie Harry is almost the exact opposite, and. I, you know, I love both movies, so don't take that as a criticism, but I think she makes it believable is what I'm trying to say. Well, yeah, because clearly this, it, this isn't her first rodeo, you know, of eating kids, you know? So <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like a farmer that, you know, like raises livestock and it's like, yeah, you could, you know, you want us, you, you, you want them to live to a point, but you're going to eat them. You know, like, so you just get used to that, I guess. that That's even more uncomfortable now that I said that out loud. She was good for the role, um, and I'm glad that they they had a chance to work together prior because she was in one of the episodes of the, the series as well. So I think that they knew that she was a good fit for the role, and I think it was well casted. Yeah, so... Um, so yeah, the, the whole thing then is this kid trying to get out. Right. And then, but she's like, but I, I gave you a book and like, he picks up this book. It's like, yeah, it's also what a kid wants when they're stuck in a dungeon already as a book. Right. Um, so, uh, but I like that it has the same like typeface logo of the TV series, which I know that's also here in, um, like, you know, it's just, it's great. Right. I think it's the same thing as a TV series. Anyway, I could be wrong, but I like this whole thing. She's like, I gave you this book to read. And so he's now trying to occupy her and delay the inevitable by reading stories. And I like that. Uh, I like that. It's like right in the jump. Like, I don't even know how many minutes, like it's like immediately he starts opening the book and then we're right into the first story. It's a really cool cut. Like I liked it. Like immediately how he's talking and then we're into the first story and that's it. We're into the, to lot two forty nine. It's a cool narrative that um, John Harrison and Rick Rubenstein decided to go with in this. Um, John really wanted to make sure that it was nothing like um, Creepshow and really make it its own product and, you know, forge forge ahead and make something that was completely different from Creepshow, but still having like that nuance that everybody appreciates from Creepshow as well. So I like that they, they chose to do it this way, where he's uh, the narrating is uh, through this book. So I, I have a piece of trivia just about uh not just the the wraparound but the order that the um stories are told in and i don't know if this is something we want to get into towards the end because i don't want to spoil it before we go through all three stories but i'm curious if that's also something that you guys came across um and i'll i'll tease it now i guess for when we're towards the end of the movie but there's some interesting stuff happening that with the way the wraparound works with the actual stories well, yeah, because she even says at the beginning that she likes love stories, right? And that's the whole, like, and he's like, oh, the first one's a love story. No, well, not really. Like, and it goes into, because, uh, I, I, yeah, I know that there was some trivia about, like, the the, the original intended order of the, the, of the stories, right? But, um, yeah, so 
Lot 249 was based upon a Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story of the same name. Um, I, I like that um, the update of this is actually really cool. I like that because uh, I was reading about the actual like short story and how um, in, a, in a way this was the first like mummy like horror short story about mummies actually being threatening. And in a lot of ways, this kind of like put the seeds into like like our collective pop culture mind of how mummies are. So, you know, that's kind of neat that there's actually like a, a, like an a, almost an original story. Meaning, I think there was one other thing out there before uh, um, this this story was written, but this is like this is kind of like the the Bram Stoker's Dracula, where it's like this is the archetype, and um, and I like that they're able to take that and update it um, for 1990. So I thought this was actually, I thought this was a really cool and fun story that still kind of felt like, it felt like 1990, especially for some of the equipment that was being used. But um, yeah, I don't know. I thought this, this was a smart way to, to update a story that still had some good, uh, some good meat on its bones, but not meat, but just flour stuffed in places. I, I do like the update to this. I actually did the audio book of the original story just the other day. And it's a terrific story. Um, there's a there's some weird pacing to it, and I think what they did on the rewrite here, Michael McDowell uh, did the screenplay adaptation of this, and I think it, he got a really clear and decisive um, story and how it fits with the rest of the movie in that, and it really gets to the meat of like how menacing the the mummy can be. So it, I, it's a really good re, uh, rewrite on it. So, um, I don't, I don't know if you guys want to go point for point for plot. Cause I just feel like that's, I mean, it's, if we do that, we're going to be the runtime of the movie itself. But like, what do you like, um, Steve, what, uh, in terms of this segment, I know you've seen this film multiple times. Like, what is it that, that you like a lot about it? Like what's some high points for you? Like, there's some particular shots that happen on this that I like a good deal. And there's some good performances too. So where are you at with this? I think that uh, the first kill of the story uh, with the uh, boyfriend who's basically screwed Bellingham, played by Steve Buscemi, out of a, a very sought-after position, um, I think that that kill um, is a classic kill at this point. I I had never heard the um, pulling the brains through the nose aspect of the mummy story before. Um, and granted I was 15 when I saw this, but that was completely new to me. And I don't know that I've ever seen, at least in another mummy type story, something that's as comparable. So I think that that's something that's just always stuck with me. But I think upon my rewatch, it's, you're going to hear this probably through all three stories. I'm impressed with how good the acting is. Um, everyone is really on point throughout this entire film. Um, and that's not always easy to do in, a, in an anthology movie and um christian slater who was just starting to become christian slater at that point like he was obviously on the rise but he wasn't you know i think a year later is where he's probably at his peak um it, it he's really good in it um i mean julianne moore i She's an actress today that everyone knows and loves, but, you know, this is one of her first films. I think she's fantastic. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about Steve Buscemi, but, um, boy, I I really love his performance in this. So that's probably my biggest takeaway is the performances, but that, that brain um, 
because I keep wanting to say coat hanger, but it's, you know, uh, there was there weren't coat hangers back in Egyptian times. No, but there's a scene uh, of you see um, the mummy, which the only depict I have is that he's being commanded by Bellingham to go kill, you know, because Bellingham knows what he he knows what he's doing. But the mummy that does not have a brain um, and is now in the 20th century finds a coat hanger and was like, oh, yeah. And then you see him twisting it and, and making it into his hook to use for the brain. So I was like, wow, he processed a lot for not having a, a, like a brain or an intelligence center at all. But whatever, it's it's a reanimated mummy. You're, my brain should already be off the door and not out my nose. Hey, if Michael Myers can be committed at age 10 and then drive a car at age 25, uh, I think he can make a, a wire hanger into a, a brain puller. <laughs> a I brain <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do, That sequence, though, with, with the coat hanger, is great because not only it, it like not like you see a lot of blood around the guy's shoes and things and you see like the aftermath of it later but you don't actually see the physical act itself it's a nice cutaway it's you got the look of terror on the dude's face and then you just hear it and i think that that's an important part for me in a lot of horror not that you know you sometimes you need to see you got to see you know the kills right there's some sweet kills that's why we love friday 13th because there's some sweet kills but but this, it's like the what's what you don't what you're not seeing of like the actively pulling the brain out of the like um, of the nose is way worse in your head. And I thought that was really a good way of showing a lot, but not but not like overkilling it. Unintended. Yeah, overkilling <laughs> it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I thought that sequence is great. So Terry, like, uh, what do you like about a uh, lot two four nine? I love the cinematography in this. Uh, it's. There's some really good shots, uh, you know, especially the panning shot of the kill that you guys are talking about right now. Um, it, you know, like they show Lee in the kitchen area and then he starts walking into the dining area of their home. And in that same shot, we see the mummy uh, on undoing the, the coat hanger. Like, that's a really good shot. And I, I guess it would it took him a while to actually get the timing of that shot down. Um when they were doing the production of this. Uh, and th the other thing that I like about this is that everybody's a scumbag in it. You're not really rooting for anybody here. Everybody's like a really seedy douche. Like I, I feel bad for the mummy. Themselves. I feel this feel bad for the mummy, honestly, especially at the end. I feel really bad for that person. Yeah. It, 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 it was like, he was an implement to just to do the bidding. Like he was just a pawn in the whole, the whole scheme. And, yeah, he got dismembered and burnt. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of sad. But, yeah, everybody is just – you're not rooting for any one person in this. And I think that's one of the things that I kind of like about storylines that the that kind of take that um, that course where it's like, well, there is no good guy here. So you pick out who you're going to be rooting for. And I don't think – I think I, I really wanted to see everybody die. <laughs> Well, and, and like I know Steve, you keep um, uh, uh, calling back to Creep Show, and rightfully so. Um, there, this has a little bit of vibe to me, like the Father's Day segment, where you have like this old, like the I don't know, like this this obviously set of the university that's like you know Ivy League or whatever. So you get a lot of this weird, like um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not inheritance, but like the way that everybody acts, like these trust fund kids, right? Uh, and how like taking the fellowship away from the one guy who actually needed it um, just because the dude cheated and planted stolen evidence on uh, um, 
well, or implied that Bellingham stole something, and then having uh, Julianne Moore's character like go over and then like try to place that item. I don't. There's a lot of like these like like soap opera moves that feel like they're of a of a certain time, which I get that I'm sure that there were certain elements of that in um, uh, you know, in the original story, but I get like this um, you know, like this uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like this entitlement that. Uh, that gives that makes me not like anybody at all. So I, I don't know if you felt the same way or not. Well, I, I think that actually, you know, you and Terry are making a good point. Um, and this goes in line with uh, Creep Show, and I, I think a lot of modern anthologies as well. I, I, it's hard for me just being having a background in comics that I can I can see the roots of the EC Comics stuff going on here, and there's a lot of EC Comics stories that are very much like that, where there is really no clear good guy. Um, you know, those stories, a lot of them were written, there's a moral to them most of the time, but a lot of times there's no real good person who's coming out of it. They're sort of morality tales in which, you know, everyone sort of gets their just desserts, and that's obviously true of Father's Day uh, in Creepshow. But uh, I think that uh, this of the three stories definitely feels the most like an EC story to me. Yeah. And that's the comparison that I would make. Um, and, uh, and Terry's dead on. Everybody's a douche in this. <laughs> well, that's why you need flowers to like, to just be stuffed into people, right. To just, uh, freshen them up a bit. That's such a cool scene too. I like how he just slices into her back and just jams those flowers right into her. And it's like, it's, it's so graphic and terrifying. Like that's the real, first horrific scene that we see in the movie and they they sold that scene pretty well too well i like I, that, I like i was gonna say i like that she walked in and saw like the brains lying in like the the, like the key jar or like the little key <laughs> the key caddy or whatever <laughs> it's just like oh here's oh there's brains that's a problem there is something i need to add to that though too um this segment was actually supposed to be a little longer and I, i'm sure that steve um saw this segment in the uh the, the behind the scenes they wanted to make it a little bit longer, so they had a morgue scene that they were going to um, use. But then um, in editing, they just felt like it was unnecessary, so they cut it out. But in this morgue scene, um, Julianne Moore, she was uncomfortable being on her back like typically a dead body would be in a morgue. So she laid on her stomach because she was like too shy to show her, her I guess, her breast or something. And I just I find that somewhat ironic because not too far after this movie, uh, she was in the Big Lebowski completely nude. Well, and <laughs> and one of her earlier roles is a film called Shortcuts, which one of the big things in that film is that she was um, bottomless in one scene, and people lost their minds. It was like her having a discussion, but like it was like a couple having a discussion. So it was like it wasn't the focus of the scene, but it was there, and people just flipped out. So that is interesting. Yeah, I guess she just hit her stride when it come to like um, how she felt about her body and uh, you know not being ashamed of it because then she was also in Boogie Nights as well. So let's not forget that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The other thing I was going to say on that too is is it it may be the only criticism that I have of this story, and that's that ending is very much in line with the ending to the. Oh God, I can't think of the name of it right now. Um, I can hold my breath for a long time. Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson. Oh, um, um, 
from Creepshow. Yeah. It's it's a it's very a, similar something ending. Something to tide you over, right? Yes, thank you. So, um it it's it's not like it ruins it for me, but it's it's just an ending that's very similar to that. Um and I I think the director uh, I it's not that he doesn't like it, but I think that he preferred the morgue ending that Terry was referring to. That's it was supposed to be more subtle. We'll put it that way. Okay. I, I, but what's not subtle and I love was uh, Christian Slater showing up with electric turkey, turkey carver and dismantling the mummy, which I, it's just funny because like he, you know, he's like, well, this thing moves slow and it's all dust and bones. So I probably could cut this thing apart pretty easily. And then the way he just like incapacitates it and then just ignores it. And it's like, like crawling behind him. You're like, that's what I felt bad for. It's like, it's only around for one thing now and now I can't do it. But I thought that was just a really fun, like that's, that's a very practical way of dealing with something where it's like, Oh, well I have this electric carving knife. That'd probably work. And I love how, uh, big the mummy was in this. Uh, so Michael Deke, he plays the mummy in this segment and he is a tall dude. And then the uh, original story, the mummy was a height of six, seven. He wasn't quite six, seven, but definitely menacing, man. And it was, I would have, I would have shit myself if I would have seen this thing coming to my house. Yeah. I would have died of fright before it ever had a chance to rip my brain out. Um, I, I also want to point out the way it walked up the steps is how I walk up steps now. So I don't know what that says about me. I, I got nothing. <laughs> no, it's just that creaky, like I'll get there eventually. And I'm like, am I a mummy? No, I can't be right. Like, you know, um, I, I don't have a scroll inside me and I don't, I don't think I have that many, um, whole onions yet other than the ones I ate for Steve's uh, cooking class later to cook me. So, uh, any, any, any other, um, things you guys want to talk to uh, talk about the segment? Um, I do like the, the, the really hardcore cab at the end that Bishimi's in. Like why, why was that cab needed? Like that was a weird thing of just like, this is a punk rock cabbie. Like what was going on there? I'm not sure. I, I, uh, yeah, I don't know why they needed to dress the cab up like that and just have him be, <laughs> be like this punk rocker. I don't. I don't really understand why they went that route. Uh, it just felt like it was unnecessary in dressing, um, but it is what it is. I I don't know that it. It never really threw me off. I guess I just thought that uh, you know. I, I think sometimes we we watch movies with the same eyes that we had when we first saw them, and I, I think for me, I I never question it because you know. I, and again, this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but like. You know, in Star Trek four, there's a punk rocker on a bus. So like to me, it would just seem natural that for some reason there's a punk rocker driving a cab. I don't know why, but my brain never questions it. So it's always been that way. So I've, I've never really given it up a, a second thought. But um, it is interesting. You mentioned the set dressing in this film, and we can talk about it a little bit more as we go through the stories. But um, the person that they hired uh and I'm blanking on her name right now, and I feel bad for that. Um, she was talking about how uh, being hired for the film, you know, a lot of the things that were pulled from to for all three stories were to make each story feel individual. And I do think that they do a really good, great job within the entire movie, actually. I don't feel like anything ever feels recycled, and I don't ever feel like anything feels false. I feel like the worlds that these stories are taking place in all feel very individual to themselves, but they also feel very real. Yeah. It's a uh, Ruth Ammon. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I believe she was, 
um, hired, uh, I think she said it was her first movie. I, I, I'm trying to remember back to going through the, the special features on the, the Blu-ray, but um, it was a, a big gig for her. And I remember her talking about being just both terrified and excited to having the chance to do it. Well, she knocked out of the park. Like it's the movie still, it's like, you're right. The, the, all, all four segments have a different vibe to them, you know? So, and, and they all work. So that's awesome. So yeah, uh, I think lot 249, we dig it. Um, we're, you know, uh, mummies are, mummies are scary. Um, uh, assholes are assholes and, and, and almost everybody gets their comeuppance except for, um, a weirdly not young Steve Buscemi. So that's, that's where we're at with that. So, um, yeah, we get more of the wraparound where, uh, you know, uh, the, the kids want to read another story. Um, that's, that's when we get, um, is that, that's when we get the evisceration thing, right? Where is it then? Or is that early on? Um, when like he's talking about the, the time to cook them, was that, I think, was that the part of the story? I can't remember. I think it was initially like when she was telling him, like, we're going to have to get you ready soon. Um, it takes a, She's doing the math and all that yeah. stuff, and then she says the evisceration thing. He's like, "Oh, oh, uh, I'm going to tell you a story." <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fair. Uh, but yeah, so we get more of that. So he goes into another one. Um, so that's when we get to the cat from hell, um, which I, you know, I'll, I'll have plenty of things to say about this. But <clears throat> okay, so um, this was the one I was wanting to talk about because it is based upon a short story uh, written by Stephen King uh, that I remember reading um, when I was growing up, and it is. Um, it's just messed up. And, and this is also the time when you were getting like, you know, Stephen King movies and things, but it wasn't like, it isn't like now where every time it's like he writes something on a napkin and suddenly it's going to be an HBO miniseries. Um, so I was excited to get a, a King adaptation in the middle of this. And this is a story that I had already, I had read and liked and it was, it was a wicked little short story. Um, but I, this one's like, like I, I like the idea cause on the surface, uh, is, uh, rich man pays hitman to go after cat hilarity ensues. Um, but watching this, this time, and, uh, you know, I, I keep talking. So I'll let you guys talk in a minute here. This is the one that reminds me the most of creep show. And not that we're trying to compare these directly to each other, but there was a lot of like, uh, there was a, a lot of information in the background of this film that a, a lot of people involved kind of view this as creep show three, but I, it didn't occur to me until watching it this last time whenever we got um, the, the older gentleman telling the hitman his story of what happened, how it would transition to the color palette. That felt like creep show to me. Um, what, do, what do you guys think? You want to go first, Steve? Yeah, uh, sure. I'll steamroll. Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll Steve roll it. No, I'm just like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I can absolutely see that. I'm, I'm still stuck, though, on your comment at the beginning of the film where you were talking about cat puppetry. And <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you felt that that was a detriment or not. But there's there's two sides to that. The first thing that I think of is that if it was a CGI cat, I know it would look terrible. Like if this was made today, it would be passable. I, I don't know that they could do better than what they did. And there's also some really impressive things that do happen with the cat. Now, yes, there are clearly things that happen where you're like, well, that's a fake cat. Um, <laughs> well, but yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Like there's this, there's, there's one shot in particular. It, it, it isn't, and it, it, it isn't the final sequence. It's one of the earlier deaths that it's, it's so, um, 
I don't know. It's so like the, the sequence from Saving Silverman whenever Steve Zahn gets attacked by a raccoon and it's just him rolling all over a front yard with a fake raccoon that he's holding up to his own face. Um, that's what I think of. So that's what, I will admit yeah. it's a little, um, you know, telling um, Bella Lugosi to get in the swamp and roll around with the octopus because the motor's broken. I, I get that. <laughs> like, there's a little bit of, of that with it. I do understand that. But I, I think sometimes... Uh, the magic of these effects, you know, even at the best, I, I, I think that they're it's it's I and against the old man in me. I sometimes get defensive of those types of things. So I, I I I'm not saying that I disagree, but I also just have a special place in my my heart for those types of effects. But when it comes to the story itself, the thing that I really wanted to talk about was the transitions that you talked about. Um that makes the story flow so incredibly well. And the fact that they're able to do it in camera where he's narrating the story and he's in the scene, but then he pulls out and the light changes and he's back in the scene with Buster Poindexter. Like that's, that's amazing stuff. Like that's filmmaking at its like easy, not easiest uh, at its simplest is the best way to put it, but it's also incredibly effective and it works better than if they'd have done like a wipe or fade away to, uh, you know, a previous, you know, uh, memory or portion of the story. So the way they work the the narration in with him having the conversation and then seeing the quote-unquote flashbacks, I think, pushes this, like, up there. Because this, I'll put my cards on the table. Of the three, this is still probably my least favorite story. But it's noticing all the intricacies of how they staged the the story really um, struck home with me upon this recent rewatch. And then you say things. <laughs> I was just, I was waiting for Terry unless he's gotten attacked by a cat and I just didn't know it. I'm sorry. I was trying not to sneeze into the, <laughs> into my phone. Um, <laughs> so all this talk about cats, has got me wanting to sneeze. Um, I love, I love exactly what um, Steve was um, really trying to like explain as best as he could. If you could see how they did the movie magic here, like they, it was incredible. Like it, just how the, they lit these scenes with the kind of lighting that they had and like the, really the lack of funds that they had. It was incredible to, to know the the lengths that they went through to get these scenes and it seems so simplistic but it really isn't it really was a difficult um ordeal for them to to take on and uh, like there is one scene also that is a seamless uh shot where they had to use a scrim a painted scrim in the background of um of drogan so drogan's talking and he's talking about how gage uh was trying to take the cat to be killed and then we see that the background gets lit up and we see a car. That's a that's a painted scrim. Hmm. So it, it's amazing that they were able to achieve something like that with such a, a small budget and just make it look as fantastic as it was. That, yeah, I didn't know that. That's awesome. But I also give credit to um, George Romero because he did the screenplay. He did the adaptation of the story for this film. And um, and you guys can can speak to this more than I can. And I but as much as there's a lot of things I like about Romero and like his, you know, his, what he did, 
I and, and Steve said it about how like the, the the flashbacks flow really well and everything in this. I wouldn't always say he's the 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 smoothest of storytellers, but this really does like cruise over. So he took King's story and found a way to weave in the backstory while keep it compelling and um yeah and, and it elevates it so um again honestly now the the watching this again i mean granted i've seen like seen this film i, I don't know how many times but just thinking about in that light um makes me appreciate this because i don't always think of romero as like the strongest scriptwriter. i think that um you know the the the, the roots were um set really well um with stephen king on this story um I did the audio book of this story just the other day as well to just really see the contrast and comparison of what Romero maybe changed or enhanced. And, um, I mean, it's, it's still true to the story except for how the outcome is in the end when, how, um, Halston gets taken out. And then of course, um, we mix in the fact that Drogon gets taken out at the end of the story as well. And it's, it, it's very it's a very big change to the story, but um, man, is it frightening to see on TV? I know that it doesn't look the best when you compare it to what maybe we're able to achieve now, but this was all done in uh, theatrical makeup and through uh, puppeteering and that. I think it actually looks pretty damn good. Um, and yeah, it takes yeah. me right back to being a kid and seeing the scene for the first time. So uh, what we're tap dancing around is like the final sequence whenever, um, or the next to final sequence, whenever the, uh, you know, the hitman um, pulls an elf and has, you know, and gets the cat shoved down his throat. Uh, but the, and that, then that's gross and effective. And then what happens after is gross and effective. What I was just talking about was the, the second death of whenever the lady, um, uh, what was the one that had the asthma, um, and they, they had that fake cat paw go up to her mouth and then it latches onto her face. Right. That's the part that's yeah. like that, that cat looked like it was like two times the width of it was normally just like, like it was like, like eek the cat, like slapped on her face. Um, and you know, whatever it's fun. But I, I will also say that the, the most of like the most realistic effect in this film that I cannot believe that they caught because cats do whatever they want is that very first kill whenever they got the cat to perfectly walk in front of that lady's like steps so she could just fall to her death. That is the most realistic cat kill. And I don't know how they got the cat to do it on purpose as opposed to, you know, just being a jerk about it. I, I want you to coin the phrase realistic cat kill. I want that to be like <laughs> how you rate films now. Like well, I, I, how realistic was the cat killing? As movie? in the cat killing somebody else. I, and now, now owning a house that has two stories and a black cat, um, I'm not terrified. I'm just gonna, I'm just going to say that because not not if anything else that he would do, but that that idiot definitely would get in front of me and I would just I'd tumble over and fall to my death. I'm pretty sure my animals try to kill me every day. <laughs> so yeah, um, but yeah, the whole the whole notion too of like um, the 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 older gentleman um, having his his empire built basically or part of his empire, Drogon by like coming up with like this uh, specific medication and it was like, you know, um, their own in-house like recipe, but they tested on like 5,000 cats. Um, and so even though like, even before the cat reveals itself to be like this supernatural thing, the first time it shows up, he doesn't want it anywhere near the house because 
I, I, I don't think it's not because he suspected this one of being evil, but it's like, I don't think he ever wanted to see a cat again because he doesn't want to be reminded of how he made his money, which I thought was uh, interesting, like t- not twist, but tying it all together of why a cat is doing what it's doing. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to interrupt in case well, I did it anyway. I wait. <laughs> <I interrupt. laughs> We're trying to be so formal here and uh, letting one do the other, uh, you know, like not stepping on their toes. It, um, real quick, I, I think that this, uh, the story, uh, I will agree was was not the strongest of the three, but it, it, it is, it's got a really, um, rich story to it, like a, um, rich storyline. And I, the fact that it's, uh, King and Romero, um, combined into this, I, I got to give it a little extra love. And the, the fact that this, this shot, all these shots were done the way that they were and, um, like watching the documentary and how difficult it was to get these shots. I love this storyline a little bit more. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, but you know, it's not for everybody. I guess I, I, don't know. I, I still I, enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I, I, when I said it was my least favorite of the three, one of them has to be the least favorite, but like, it's not that it's not something that I would fast forward through. Or, you know, not watch, you know, on any viewing. So I, I didn't mean to give that impression if that's the way I came off. I mean, that's the way I took it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, it just, um, but it, the, the, the sequence too, when um, uh, Drogon comes back and he sees the, you know, the hitman dead on the floor. And it's like, he's like, oh no. It's like, it's like he almost half expected it anyway. Right. Like just because when you're going to pay, what was it like a hundred thousand dollars total for a guy to shoot a cat or whatever. It's like. You know, but he's seen this thing like keep coming back and killing everybody around him. He probably knew that, you know, he may not have to pay that money. But whenever you see the stomach start swelling and, and that that is that is just unnerving and just the cat coming out of this guy, it is, it is gross. And I also like it. They th- this was the reverse of the other like when I talk about like the fake cat on the lady's face. There's definitely a point where they they take a cat and cover it in like cooking grease or whatever, and have it halfway out of the prosthetic mouth to crawl out. Like that is just gross. Also, um, they should give whoever was the person greasing up the cat extra pay that day. So they they do talk about that on on the the Shout Factory Blu-ray. Uh, they talk about the fact that they sort of put the cat in there and only gave it one way to get out. <laughs> and let the cat just sort of figure out how to get out of it. Um, they also joke about the fact that, you know, people will tell you in Hollywood, like, oh, my cats are trained. They're like, you cannot train a cat. It's just, it's impossible. Um, and I, I think anybody who's ever owned a cat knows that that's, that's not a thing. They're just, they're not trainable. Uh, you can't have a trained cat. Uh, and there's actually a moment, I think, that they talk about that uh, was lost. Um, it was the cat doing... Uh, I believe when um, the the older gentleman that you were talking about from Breaking Bad, who um, is the chauffeur slash butler slash houseman, I guess, mm-hmm. um, when he's encountering the cat uh, outside, they apparently there was a moment that was supposed to happen uh, while he was um, outside that got lost, and they were like it's a cat. We're never going to get that moment again. And it was apparently when they were cutting the negative, an issue happened and they just completely lost that moment altogether. So, um, that, that I think is, is, you know, 
you're very right. They they literally just were like, here, push this cat out of this dummy. Like, give, it, <laughs> give it an opening and grease it up. Uh, <laughs> but be, before we go on to the next story, and I don't I, I, I don't know, you know, if you were planning on talking too much more about this one, but I, I wanted to make a mention real quick of uh, Romero. And, and you were talking about you don't think that he's. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you said that you, you don't know that he's always the best screenwriter. Yeah. You, you don't want to put cats in my mouth. I know, but no, I'm right. just saying not screenwriter as in like, he not that I'm just saying that like, uh, you know, some of, some of the dialogue maybe and some of just, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think he's always the most like there's, it's a little shaggy with some of, some of the scripts with the, with the dialogue and the way things are paced. Right. That's, that's how I feel about it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just that's the vibe I get. Um, everybody kind of has the way they do things, and, and maybe that's what people appreciate. Um, but as much as we talk about, like, the, the, the dead films, um, you know, like, they're all, you know, they're all wonderful in their own ways, but they also do feel a little shaggy to me at times with, with the storytelling. And with this, it feels very streamlined, and I, w- I wanted to give credit where credit's due. See, I actually, uh, my my rebuttal to that is just that I, 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 I we're gonna fight. Uh, I completely what? disagree. <laughs> I think that that Romero. I think the thing that he focuses on the most is the story, and I, I think that actually he's ahead of his time. I think that uh, look at Land of the Dead. Land of the Dead came out in two thousand four. Tell me that that um, Dennis Hopper's character in that film is not where we're living now tell me that the way we're dealing with our pandemic is not the way they're dealing with a zombie problem in dawn of the dead like i i i realize that i'm i'm suddenly confrontational apologize uh but <laughs> i think that he's i'm so gonna fight you but i'm gonna apologize every <laughs> single time i say something no, no so let me let me um let me counter that and then um you know i'll turn you'll turn your mic off for two minutes you can't respond no um what, what i'm saying everything you're saying i agree with you i'm like but it's like how do i quantify this like all of that's good and it's very important it just i'm talking like scene to scene sometimes things are shaggy in terms of of, of dialogue and transition um, and that might be a purposeful choice. It just might not be one that I'm always the, the biggest fan of. I'm just saying with this, I, I think the the um, it you know the way that the screenplay was written for this, but also Harrison's direction. Maybe he just kind of took some of the edges off of it. I don't know. Like I, that's just my opinion. Um, probably very flawed and also shaggy. So you know, uh, that's that. But either way, I. It's not always. It's not always easy taking King short stories and adapting them and making them still work on the screen. I and I think what Terry's mentioning about like the added the, the different ending because if I remember right in the short story, the hitman actually has the cat in the car with him and it, the car crashes. Right, that's the end of the story. It's true. Yep. Okay, and then at that point, I think uh, the cat comes out of the car and it's going back towards Drogon. If it's, like it's not as graphic, right? Well, no, he 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 does still go into his mouth. Okay. Um, and it it is a pretty graphic scene because it's talking about how, you know, he's choking on his own vomit while this cat's still trying to um, go down. Um, and then like a farmer, the next day, finds the car and sees the cat come out of the mouth, okay. and then it goes towards. It starts walking back towards the house. 
Yeah. So I mean, I think that um, I think Romero did improve upon this by having having the person responsible for all the cat deaths be the one to witness the hitman's demise, or you know, the like the later demise, right? So yeah, I think there's there this this is I think the better better version, all things considered. So. Steve, you're not wrong. You know, I know you're you're trying to fight and apologize, but you know. Um. <laughs> well, you telling me that original ending makes me want to now like imagine an ending where the hitman and the cat team up, and they like he's now hitman, but he has the cat do the kills. <laughs> that's that's why I'm not Stephen King, and I'm just Steve King. So <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you want laser cats. You want the Saturday Live show, laser cats, which you know. I want Toonses the driving cat. <laughs> Toonses the hitman cat. That's what we need. There you go. But no, I, I I like the sequence. I the whole cat vision thing too of like every time like the guys like you know like shoot and pull to kind of like oh I'm not going to pay attention to you or or when he goes to feed it cat food. I like the bit of he goes to shoot at the cat and he completely misses because. He didn't miss, but, you know, it's supernatural. I don't know how they did the shot the first time something happened behind the cat because it didn't move at all. And I'm like, well, most cats wouldn't give a shit as long as they get to eat food. But I liked I liked all that. It was it was just really fun. And I liked uh, the constant, like, predator camera, like, following him around and just, like, running up. Because you got to imagine on set that there's just guys with cameras running up to uh, the actor. And then it's like, pretend you got scratched. Pretend your crotch is now destroyed, you know. That would have been fun. Those are actually fun sequences, too. Um, they were talking about how they actually wanted to get a different type of lens for the camera, but the budget restraints just wouldn't allow it. Um, so they had to improvise and just kind of use two different lenses, um, kind of one over the other to achieve that uh, that look. And then the TV scene that you're talking about, they said that they actually blew the TV up right behind the cat. Like the cat was sitting there eating its food and they blew the TV up while the cat was still sitting there. Now I don't necessarily think that they're, um, see, I think that was the shot that made it onto screen. I think that there was a little bit of editing and maybe did a, a second take and, um, there was a fake cat in front of it. Cause yeah, like when that TV blows up, you can see what's, what doesn't look like a real cat kind of the fur move on it a little bit and nothing else moves. <laughs> yeah. That, that poor cat. Like, but, but yeah, I like the, I like the kind of quasi evil dead, like uh deadite, like vision that was going on with the cat. I thought that was fun. There is another fun tidbit of knowledge about this. Um, this story within the movie, they actually wanted this initially for um, the second installment of creep show. Um, but because of budget restraints and that, and they knew they couldn't really do it with any cheaper of a budget, they couldn't fit it into the movie. So they they uh, they put they basically put the story the story to the side, and they were going to use it later, possibly in the show. But then it just ended up in the movie instead. Oh, perfect. Well, it, it's a, it's a wonderful little bridge segment, right? Because it's you, it's it's just more of um I don't know like. Don't think too hard about it. Uh, like uh, everybody also gets their comeuppance again, and uh, there's some sweet cat kills. There you go, some sweet cat violence, <laughs> and that's where we're at with it. So I, just, you know, um, crickets. Yeah, crickets. I just you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I uh, just 
I just, I just to let everybody know, like I, I podcast with these guys like each week. And the thing is, it's usually just the two of us over Skype. So when I shut up, it's a little easier for the other person to know that, Hey, he's done talking. But since they're both used to me just running loose at the mouth, I'm sure they're both waiting for me to shut up and then they talk. So they're both being very polite. And it's just, it's funny where it's like, Oh, Oh, he's done talking now. Okay, good. Well, I, I feel like people are listening to hear you and Terry talk. I'm just the, you're the, guest, the, the guest. You're the goddamn no, guest. guest. That's why we have no, you I'm, on here. I'm God damn it. I didn't mean that to demean me, but I'm just saying that like I always just wait for Terry to talk just because I don't want to overstep something that he may have prepared for the show because it's your guys' show. You're the That's you're the most call. apologetic confrontational person I've ever met. Just <laughs> We're gonna fight, and then I'm gonna buy you a beer. <laughs> you, you'd be the most interesting politician ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am not built for politics. I'll put it that way. <laughs> All right. So, um, so then, yeah, um, we get we get another little quick quick uh, uh, bite of um, the the wraparound story where. It, like the clock is ticking. Uh, he's about to be put in the oven. So he's like, no, I'll read one more story. It's a love story. Um, you know, I, I do like that. Like, uh, she's like committing. I'm like, you did a good job of reading those or whatever. Like, so she's, you know, she's still like setting up shop, but you know, he's going to be put in the oven soon. Um, but so then yeah. here's the thing. I, I'm sorry to interrupt no, you, but I'm just taking over. Uh, <laughs> do it, Steve, do it. Interrupt him. <laughs> This is this is the bit of trivia that I wanted to mention earlier in the show is that uh, they had to reorganize the way the stories were told, not only because they did a test screening and Lover's Vow was actually the first story. And they realized that um, people reacted to that one the most. So they switched that and um, Lot 247. Those were always the two that were going to begin and end the segments. But um, they switched them basically because they felt that lover's vow was a stronger finale with that. They also had to re, I don't want to say reconfigure, but they had to change the way the story is told with, um, Debbie Harry and the Lawrence kid. And they talk about it and I rewatched it and I still don't really notice it. They are talking about like, Oh, you notice she's brings in flowers, but she's not cutting them until this scene. And like, I don't think you're paying that close of attention to the way the film is edited to notice that there's anything that may be out of sequence. But a, I will say that I cannot picture this movie with lovers Vow first. It's absolutely unbelievable that that would have been a choice to me. Like I, I think that of the three, yes, it's the strongest, but I, I think that the order that they're in now is, is easily the best. Um, with that in mind though, I can't notice any sort of decisions that they made editing wise that would have affected the Debbie Harry slash little kid, Matthew Lawrence story. And I think that's really a testament to how strong the writing is and how well edited it is. Like the, the editor on the shout factory Blu-ray even talks about the fact that he's like, Oh, I can't believe it. She brings in flowers and that she's not cutting them. And then we cut to her and the flowers aren't there. And I'm like, nobody's paying attention to that. that didn't even like never occurred to me. Yeah, I, I just I, I was just dumbfounded by that. I'm like, I'm like, well, a it never occurred to me that these stories would appear in any other order. But also, like the editing is so tight, it's never even something that enters our head. And uh, I guess as somebody who often will like spill the tea on like the behind the scenes of something that I'm working on and be like, oh, I can't believe I did this. And somebody would say, nobody noticed. 
I, I, I think that that's just a very uh, arty thing to do. Uh, Over-explain, which I'm doing right now. But, uh, yeah, I just I wanted to mention that real quick, that Lover's Vow, which we're going into, was initially going to be the first scene. And they had to, you know, like I said, re-edit a lot of the wraparound story to make it fit. And I don't think it's noticeable at all. You can talk. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see any. I didn't see anything wrong with the continuity. Um, you know, I've seen this movie well over a dozen times. And that's never been at the forefront of like um, things that I really notice when I watch a film. Uh, like you always get these trolls on on the internet. They're like, he had a cigarette that was half lit in one scene, and then it's a full cigarette in the na- next scene. It's like, who gives a shit, man? Like, <laughs> why are you paying attention to something so trivial? Like, Just watch the movie and appreciate the rest of the art that's going on around and in it. You know. Well, it was like, what was it? Um, uh, when S- Steve and I on uh, Invasion of the Podcast were covering Paranorman like two weeks ago, someone put trivia up that was like, based upon the shape of the mother, it looks like she was pregnant, though it doesn't look like it. Like, it was like this whole thing of like it had nothing to do with anything in the movie at all. And it didn't have a story point, but someone's like, you know, this is a bit of trivia. It's like that's not trivia. That's art design, you idiot. You know, just like let it be. Like, and then continuity wise, as long as it's not like, um, like egregious right like something to the point of like it, it just it, it it actually wrecks the movie there's probably so many continuity errors that there and things that we don't even think about even though we think that may be perfect films like uh, like we all love the thing there's probably things in there that we've never noticed that would drive carpenter mad knowing that they existed you know so whatever and yeah, I think I, that you're going to have that a, a lot of times with people that put so much heart and emotion and time into a product or uh, something that, you know, really they they wanted to see the best outcome. And then they're going to see the, the rough edges of it. And you're like, well, me as a consumer, me as a viewer, I'm never going to really notice that because I never knew what to compare it to. And I, I don't want to bring Star Wars into the equation here, but uh, uh, I, I always do on our show, so I'll ruin your show as well. Um, there's a there's a story Mark Hamill tell, uh, tells about uh, the first screening and him turning to Harrison Ford, and he was complaining that his hair didn't match the scene. And Harrison Ford, like a, a scene transition, like from scene to scene, he's like, "Oh, my hair is." And a completely different, like, look in this scene that as it is here. And Harrison Ford looked at him and he's like, if people are paying attention to your hair, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> I think that that's actually perfect, you know? Like, th- these are things that, yeah, maybe you'll notice, maybe you won't, but they're not, they're not ruining a movie. Mm-hmm. So um, I just thought that was interesting that, A, they had a different... Uh, uh, progression of how the stories were initially going to go and that they had to re-edit, but also the fact that I would have never noticed had they not told me. Yeah, so. right. So, um, yeah. So, so Steve, I know this is like your, your favorite segment, um, and I think this is Terry's favorite segment as well. Uh, do you talk, talk to us about Lover's Vow and walk us into it, and we can talk about all the, the things we, we, we like about this one. Well, an, an artist who is struggling um, and well, I guess I work a day job. I'm not a struggling artist because I have something else that I'm doing. Uh, I can relate to this, but a uh, struggling artist uh, finds out that his uh, most recent work isn't selling 
and he's sort of at his wit's end uh, when he goes down to meet his agent who gives him his worst news that he's being dropped. Uh, he sits down at the bar with a friend of his and spends the night drinking. Uh, at the end of that night, uh, he and his friend, or he and the bartender leave. Uh, and at that point, a occurrence happens in which a monster slash gargoyle appears and kills the bartender and tells the artist that if he tells anyone about this night, he'll come back and kill him and lets him live. And from that point on, the artist goes on to meet uh, a young woman on that same night, takes her home, and we soon find out that they've been together at least 10 years uh, and have formed a life together, and that's where the story really picks up. Wonderfully said. There you go. I don't know about that, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, this one, like, um, like he got the loft apartment, like, like, um, you know, the artist loft apartment in New York, right? Like that's, that feels tropey, but also feels very appropriate. I mean, you, you do get the vibe that this guy, um, you know, that Preston, you know, he, like, he, I, Steve, you, you being an artist, like you see some of his stuff around his loft, but it's like, what, what was he working on to begin with? Was it like one of those like uh, balsa wood bridge projects you get in like high school to try to see if you could hold up weight? Like what was that thing he was working on? Well, it's interesting because the rest of the time we see him doing sketches and drawings. Yeah. And I guess maybe I should go back and look at the art exhibit that he has later. But I never see him doing sculpture work. It's It's interesting to me, although I guess he does make a sculpture that he I, shares at the end of the film with a gargoyle. Uh, but. It, it, I, I've never made anything like that. We'll put it that way. I'm not a sculpture artist. I've never tried to take balsa wood and glue and try to make a kite. I don't know what he was trying to make there. Um, but I think the point was supposed to be that he's a, uh, you know, fine artist and he's trying to create something new and he's at a point where he's blocked. Yeah. So I just, I, yeah, I don't know why I focused on that, but I did. Uh, now you start talking about continuity. I have questions about everything now. No. Um, so, so what is it? Uh, and I'll, I'll put this on Terry now. Uh, what is this? Like, I believe this is your favorite segment of the three. I, I think you've kind of not hid your cards for that. Um, what, what is it about this one that you like a lot? And what's some things about it that you dig? Um, you know, I've, I've grown up really enjoying monster movies the most. I, uh, I, I do have a soft spot for other types of horror and um, thriller stories, storylines and that. But my main passion is monster movies. I love monsters, always have. And this is the one that I remember watching this movie. And this story scared the shit out of me. It was the it was so creepy. It was so menacing. Like I, there were times that I actually didn't even finish this uh, this segment of the movie because I was so terrified of the gargoyle. And, you know, fear is a hell of a thing, you know, when you're a kid and it, it can make me love even like the most tropey um, garbage films of uh, sometimes. And I'll keep on coming back to them because I love monsters. And then the the love story aspect of this is it just it layers it so much more and how gritty the story is as well. And um, James Remar, it's like he's. He's a very talented individual, and he really sells this um, storyline um, of being the the struggling artist who's just trying to get by and make a name for himself. Um, there's just like a whole bunch of facets to it that I enjoyed a lot when I was a kid, and 
I really honestly enjoy it a hell of a lot more now. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I would agree with that too. I think the most unbelievable part of the segment is like the world's happiest bartender and like that, that shithole bar that they're at. Cause he just seems like a nice guy, you know, and he's like, okay, come on, Preston, we got to go. And it's like, well, what about this dude over here? He's like, eh, just, I'll, I'll lock up. I'll let him out tomorrow. And it's like, and he pulls a handgun and then like, he just seems like, you know, like just generally like a great guy. Right. And then whenever the gargoyle appears as Preston's taking a leak, uh, you know, outside, um, he's like, I just wasn't, it's not supposed to be funny, but he's like, help me. Why aren't you helping me? <laughs> like, I just, the bartender gets, gets done dirty in this, uh, the, the five seconds he's in this, um, segment. Yeah. To say the least. I mean, and I, uh, you know, the fact that Preston is just watching everything go down. I don't know how much he really thought he could have done with one swipe. The dude's hand came off. Hmm. Like, I don't know how much you can combat a, a like an eight foot gargoyle at that point and uh, actually save your buddy at that. I, I mean, I maybe uh, maybe I get a little liquor strong at that point and maybe try to fight a big gargoyle, but probably not. I'd probably find another um, untapped fountain of pee, and that would be that would be bad. That would exactly. I'd just be like, uh oh, and I'd I'd have to run away and then go vomit in a corner like he did, because I you know with that happening, I definitely would run in terror and then vomit in terror. Well, I think also part of it has to do with, you know, a all of us have different responses to emergencies. Like my wife is clearly much better in an emergency than I am. I'll run around like a chicken with my head cut off and she'll have a very measured response where I'm like, how are you this calm? Um, but at the same time, I think, A, he's inebriated. B, uh, you mentioned, you know, how this doesn't have like Friday the 13th style kills. Uh, when we were talking about the first segment, and I absolutely agree with you, but I think of this in the same set, uh, way that uh, in Friday 4, there's a character by the name of Rob who's hunting Jason. And basically, Rob meets his demise when Jason is in a basement and catches him and just holds him down. And you don't actually even see what's happening to Rob. You just hear him screaming, run, oh my God, he's killing me. And I feel like this is just as effective because the a Preston is trying to process what's happening, but B like the guys like help me, help me, help me. Like I don't know, I I, I don't I I don't want to go out on a limb and say that it's the most realistic of kills, but like it's certainly something that I think is is very relatable. Like how would you respond to that? And if you were liquored up, how would you respond to it? Like it, it's it's a two facet thing, and I think it's very effective that you know he doesn't have a response because he's still processing. So I, sometimes just you know the idea of not showing it can be more effective, and we've talked about that on uh, other episodes of our own show. And I, I don't know, I I, I like that. Um, I don't know that uh, they could have improved on that. But uh, that that might just be the way I view it, knowing that I'm terrible in an emergency. <laughs> so <laughs> fair enough. Um, I'm sure Preston yeah. is. I, I'm sure Preston is still pissing himself at this point too, because I don't think he had time to, <laughs> to really react to um, his buddy getting killed. So he's probably still peeing um, and being in comatose, almost looking at this this uh, tragedy happening in front of him. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I'm saying. That's the story we're not seeing is, uh, and thankfully so. We, we, do, we do not need, we don't need that practical effect to keep happening. So I'm, I'm fine with that. So, so yeah, like after that, um, but even like the, the original appearance of the gargoyle, um, the way they kind of kept a little bit in shadow and being like, you know, do you, do you, uh, vow like to me that you'll never speak of this and you know, I'll let you live. Like that's very effective. Cause you, you, so you see the monster, right? And that's, um, maybe not entirely, but you see enough of it. And I think that's also kind of flipping the story on its head because normally you wait till the end to see the monster, right? This time around you get it at the very, very beginning. And then it's just a matter of waiting for the other shoe to drop about his life. Cause you see him after he meets, um, uh, what's her name? Her name is, um, uh, let's see here. It is Carola. Carola. Yeah. Um, I want to say Crayola and that's not right. Um, so after, you know, after that, um, starts up, he's even, even like, like almost immediately he's doing sketches of what he saw. And you're always just wondering like, all right, you made a promise. Like, how's this going to backfire? So that's where you get that unease of like, oh, these two people like each other. They're doing pretty good. Like, what's going to happen? And I, that I think that works really well for the segment. In the circumstances that he has met, uh, Carola, is uh, very unorthodox mm-hmm. because it, th- he just watched his buddy get murdered by this thing. And he's obviously terrified, and he's he's he ran away from the scene, and then he runs into Kerala and tries to protect her because he assumes maybe that this thing is still on the loose, killing people, and that. Um, so yeah, and then this like literally that night, uh, she spends the night with him. So it's uh, I don't know how often that would really happen, but it, that's how it played out in this in the storyline. I mean, she must have been okay with this guy reeking of vomit and um, and pants piss. You know, I don't know. Maybe is that like a new Axe body spray? I don't know about pants piss. Yeah. <laughs> I, hopefully not. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's going to do very well for the the Axe body spray company. Yeah. So um, don't worry; they'll just rebrand it as something like you know, um, extreme. Extreme acts. So, Extreme never mind. Acts, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, um, I, I think that, I, and unfortunately, I feel like the love story has to be, like, it has to be turbocharged to get to the end because it is, like, you know, it is a smaller segment. Um, it does make me wonder how this could have played out in maybe a little bit of a longer form. I think that this would have been interesting to see as, like, a feature. I don't, I don't know what you guys feel about it, but I think there could have been. I, I think you could have really, really gotten a feel to care about both the characters because I feel like um, Kerala until the very end, there's there's not a lot there for us to latch onto. Yeah, this, this definitely has the the bones to be a feature length film, um, but I I think that they they work it down to a point where it fits well enough in this format, and you get enough storyline to follow through and, you know, still have a good story. Yeah. I mean, I do. The thing I noticed this time watching it uh, is whenever, um, they're back at his place and, uh, he takes off his shirt and he has that big claw mark on, you know, and he said he ran into a bottle of whiskey or whatever. And she takes like the, the alcohol, um, like, you know, the cleaning alcohol, whatever it is to, uh, you know, clean out the wounds. Every time he winces, she says, she's sorry, which, like knowing what we know, 
that that's the stuff I love in these two where it's like it's being right in front of you what's going on but it means something else I thought that was wonderful yeah I I, I just wanted to mention um, that we were having a discussion about it, it being you know longer and I, I can certainly see that argument but I think for the nature of the story I think that a Radon Chong is just really lovable um, as the, you know, uh, the character that we're being introduced to, but also just the fact that, and we see it through actually all three of the stories. I'm going to go back to the fact that like, this may actually be a very actor's horror movie. We'll put it that way. You've got, you've got Christian Slater in um, Steve Buscemi in that wonderful scene where Steve Buscemi's tied up. And Christian Slater is, you know, taking apart the mummy and burning it up. But that's that's really an actor scene. Then you've got um, Bill Hickey and um, I keep wanting to call him Buster Poindexter because that was his stage name. But those two having a lot of time together and on screen talking. And I feel like in this, it's the same thing. James Remar and Ray Dong Jong the way that they're effectively able to communicate their relationship with not only each other, but to the audience, I think that that's really strong. I think it's the, the, I think it's one of the strengths of the film. And I think that it, it works for what we're getting. And I realized that I, I started this conversation or this, this point that I was making uh, talking about something else. And I dove into another point uh, which those of you who listen to Invasion of the Podcast know I'm very famous for doing. But uh, I, I think that it works just basically on the strength of those two actors and the conversations that they're having. And I, I think that that's, that's enough to get the meat across of what the story is. Man, Steve and I is coming to blows tonight over. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, no, no, I mean, you're right. It's just, I, you know, like it's just anytime you have like a smash cut of 10 years later, it's like, wow, that's a, a lot of shit went on, huh? Right. And it's like, and then suddenly you know, his life's like so much better. Uh, his, his former, his former agent is now back because he realizes that he's riding the money train. Um, like, you know, he's, you know, Preston's married to her. They have two kids. Again, I know we needed to get there like in a pretty quick, quick manner. It's just, and this is not a nitpick. It's just, I guess it's just like, I wish there would have been a little bit more breathing there, but, um, you know, like, again, you only have so many minutes and you, you already have devoted a film to three other stories. So I get it. You know, um, it's just, so, again, yeah, please. I, I don't want to interrupt. I, I just want to say this as, as, the three of us, of all, all of us being married, I think of who I was before I met my life, my, my, my life, before I met my <laughs> wife, and how my life changed. And it's immeasurable how different my life is because of her being in my life. So I guess maybe it's not something that I ever would have, you know, uh, it would have never given me pause in a film now having experienced it. So... And maybe you guys, uh, you know, feel the same way or, or differently or whatnot. But I, I never question that change in the film. We'll put it that way. I, I never, I'm never like, oh, I needed another scene of her explaining, you know, how they met that night or that we we didn't get to know Carola enough. I think that 
Radon Chong is so good that we immediately sort of fall in love with her and we're along for that journey. I think what progresses the story along um, pretty quickly and uh, in a pace that it needs to be for how this is formatted um, is the fact that Preston literally almost lost his life. Um, He has been given a second chance by the creature. If if it wasn't for the fact that um, the creature had given him that 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 chance to walk away, he would have never met this woman. So I think that also, you know, he's at the he's literally at the bottom of where he 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 sees his life. He can't get shit going with his career in that. He almost died. He's seen his buddy die. He probably looked at her as a savior almost like come walking into his life like please give me a chance to like look at something to look forward to. And she immediately went towards that. And, you know, we have the different motive for her character, but Preston is really down in the dumps. So the fact that he sees her, he sees a new beginning. Well, I think also there's, there's a wonderful scene like after he meets her that we see him at a gallery where things have taken off for him and his friend from the bar who survived because he was locked inside shows up and you see James Remar just has this guilt about him. Like he doesn't want to deal with what really happened. He doesn't want to talk about it, but he also feels like things are changing for him. Things are getting better. But I, I feel like he's displaying just sort of this survivor's guilt that I think is, uh, it, it's not stated in the film, but it, it's certainly something that I got from his performance. I could see that because um, Maddox was like the closest to the scene of the crime and he knows that Preston was the last person to see him. But I also feel that there's a, there is an idea that Maddox is a part of his past that maybe that past, that chapter of his life needs to close no matter what. And this life that he's built with Kerala is the new future. Like he, he just wants to forget who he was and strive for something better. That's a very good point. And I actually, uh, I am going to hire you to come and write points for me before I do the other <laughs> podcast with Paul. Oh gosh. Uh, that's gosh, a good gosh. point. Um, and it's actually something that I hadn't considered before. So that's a, that's a really good point. I wish I would have thought of that before uh, this conversation. Well, that's that's that a good point. The fun part of having podcasts and conversations is that you think about things, right? It's like, uh, we try, we try to be smartful about things. So, um, yeah, so let, let's just uh, well, well, let's get to the end here of the, the segment, which is uh, heartbreaking and amazing in equal parts of whatever he finally reveals to Carola. Like, hey, I, like I want to be honest with you. I like I, everything, you know. Like you've done you've done everything for me. The one thing I, I the the one thing I need to do for you is to be completely open and honest. And he brings out the statue. Um, you know, his super sweet uh, um, you know, Warhammer image or whatever the gargoyle. Um, you know, like he's like his little painted miniature of like, you know, whatever. Um, and he's like trying to explain that's what happened. And then just, you know, that's when everything starts falling apart and you can tell that she's heartbroken. And that's like the sequence going from there is, is amazing because I know that to do like multiple cuts to show this transformation, um, like transformations in, in movies. That's like you, there you talked about being terrified as a little kid. This is the stuff that would mess me up. Like something like this in this movie where it's not just a single transformation. It looks like three, right? It almost looks like she has to go through like various husks 
to get up to um, gargoyle size. And it looks painful as all get out. But it's an amazing sequence. They had so many like film gags like set up for this to happen. And it was just like, that was like the super daunting thing for them as the, the, the design crew and the makeup crew is to get all of this right as, 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 as best as they could on the first shot. Because some of these gags were almost going to be impossible with their time restraints, um, constraints rather, and um, budget restraints to, to get it right the first time, to get the shot looking as good as they could. Um, it, it was it's magic man it really is like when you see how well this shot looks i mean it's true body horror in itself too um it was it's so reminiscent of um american werewolf in london it's just it's it looks great it really does i think the moment that hits home for me the most as far as like the special effects go is is the last line that carola gives before she's fully transformed is, is she says I think she says something like you promised uh, and you broke your promise. And then like she, she tilts her head down and you see like her like skin break and the head start to come out. I mean, we've already seen that like the legs are changing and I think there's a couple other quick shots of things that are happening to her body, but like her, her head just goes down and like where her hairline is, you see it split. Oh, that, that is true like movie magic in my opinion i i love that shot so very much yeah it's very effective and i also um i think it was it was smart of them and probably budget wise of them to to not show the kids um doing anything until they came into the room so preston could see really the extent of what he's lost like that was also like very effective as well seeing them like just be you know smaller gargoyles, you know, and them not knowing what happened and just looking at their dad, right? Like that's, that's messed up. And it's, it's, yeah, that I, I can see why the test screenings where people were like, this is this, you know, basically this is, this is the, the, the money shot of the film. Like don't, don't start your story off with this because it's going to be a, um, a weird landing to have, uh, you know, a, a cat going down someone's throat and um, a turkey carver, uh, cutting up a mummy after that, right? So I could see why the, this was made the anchor. I think yeah, what sells it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Happened again. No, go ahead, Steve. No, no I, I, go ahead. I think what sells it is, is is James Remar's horror. Like, A, the children look sad. Like, they don't understand what's happening to themselves. And, like, it's it's maybe, I don't know, maybe a 10 to 20 second shot of seeing them at, in their gargoyle f- form. But their faces is is our complete sadness, and James Remar's just absolute horror. And what has become of not only his wife, but of his children is really effective. So uh, that that that's the point that I wanted to make is that like, well, yeah, we didn't see the children, you know, change into the gargoyles. What we get of it is equally haunting and horrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, oh, kudos, kudos to Remar because um, he considers himself uh, more of a method actor, and he tapped into um, the emotions about how he's actually he was his wife was pregnant at that moment, um, so he was really kind of harnessing um, those emotions about being a father and what you know what this uh, 
impact would be to a father. Well, that that's even that that gives more depth to that. That's uh that's awesome. But I the the one thing I like the, the one thing. There's so many things about the sequence I like, but whenever he you know, he gets killed and then she flies away with her kids in tow, how like I that that last image of of them like going to the top of the building, like that overlooks that alley where we first started our whole thing with and how they turn turn to stone and the the kids are in like this loving embrace of her. It's like it's 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 beautiful. Like it's a really, really cool sequence. And it also cements the sadness of like, you know, he broke the promise. Now they have to wait for whatever however that that, that magic works, right? But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a nice it's a really nice ending. Like and it le- and it just leaves, you know, I don't know, it just leaves you feeling heartbroken, which is the point. And the influence for this storyline, uh, Michael McDowell, um, he took a, a, a Japanese folklore about this um, this ghost that would uh, come to different villages and that, and who would ever see it would die automatically. And um, in the one storyline, um, a, a different person sees it happening to like his brother or something like that, and watches the the, the ghost kill his brother. And she says to him, you don't tell anybody about this ever and we won't have any problems. So it's a, it's a, it's a, basically a retelling of that story. And it's I think it was beautifully done in this. I agree. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't want to interrupt. But, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, that story, I'm not I wasn't familiar with that story, actually, until I watched the Blu-ray and they were talking, uh, I think, James Remar and both. He and Radon Chung acknowledged that story. I was unaware that it existed. But, uh, yeah, I I don't know. I, I love this this segment of the film the most. I think that it's the most effective. And, um, boy, oh, boy, does it, it still work 30 years on. We'll just put it that way. Yeah. So, all right. So then we get to the, the movie. Um, we get, like, the wrap-up for the wraparound story is really fast. I forgot about how fast it was. And I think it's actually to its... Um, you know, I think it's to its strength that it ends very home alone, but like if home alone was like more deadly, I guess, I don't know. Um, but with, uh, you know, the kid getting out of the, like the cage, uh, um, uh, Deborah, uh, Debbie Harry ending up with like the, the big, the big shiny needles in her back. And then she falls into the oven and then we get like the, ain't I a stinker look <laughs> like, you know, on the kid's face, but you know, he gets these cookies. So it's a good ending. Yeah. It, it was a, it was a fun ending. Um, it, it just felt like uh, the perfect adaptation of um, what is it? The uh, Hansel and Gretel without, <laughs> yeah. you know, being set in an old time period. So it, it's a fun, it's a fun little wraparound story. I think it worked really, really well for this movie. And uh, it, it was, it was like the off colored humor that the rest of the storyline needed because after seeing the end of lover's vow, you're probably in the dumps emotionally. And then you see that ending. You're like, okay, cool. It's time to go home. I can wipe the tears away. (laughs) (laughs) Who wants cookies? You know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Steve. No, I I want cookies and, uh, it wouldn't be a, a show, a podcast with me if I didn't somehow inadvertently take a screenshot and send it during, uh, (laughs) The uh, podcast. Uh, so I apologize if there was a noise in there. You, I was trying to mute okay. my mic, 
and uh, I took a screenshot and then sent it to Paul. So yeah, I, I, I received a screenshot. It's just um, of the three of our non-faces on <laughs> Skype. And I'm like, thanks. I will treasure this forever, um, this moment in time. But no, it just – so anyway um, – I, I think you. I think we've pretty much laid out like where, or like it's it's three segments. Like I think I think I know where you guys are with your favorites. Uh, I'm I'm sure it's more of like a three one two situation for you guys. Um, I I am partial to the cat from hell just because uh, it's just so ridiculous. Um, but there there's not a, there's not a weak segment which for anthology stuff that's not a guarantee, right? So um, I think this is this is a great film start to finish, and it's it's one. That you know, knowing that you both wanted to get into it, I was really looking forward to it because it's it's a it's a film worth celebrating. Like I know horror fans know about this movie, but I don't know how well known it's like outside of things, right? Because aside from the syndicated TV show, this was the only movie. There was plans for a sequel. Like it just kind of that's kind of it, right? Like you know. I don't know if this is one that gets brought up in conversation a lot for people that like want to watch something for Halloween. I think this is a great film to watch for Halloween. I think it is kind of a hidden gem when it comes to popular horror films and especially anthology based storylines. Um, I'm glad that Scream Factory put out the the new fancy edition of this. It looks beautiful. The um, the documentary that they put into it is uh, really enlightening um, and it's wonderful to watch. Uh, I just wish that they would have put out uh, a second movie. Uh, but I don't, I mean, that, then you come into the territory of like, well, is it going to be as good as the first? And you're going to have a lot of like budget restraints then. And, you know, the, you know, a, a lots of production problems, like typically, uh, filmmakers will have, um, there was supposed to be, uh, a, a new, uh, version of the show that was supposed to come out in about 2015, that was going to be spearheaded by Joe Hill and just, it lost its momentum and no, um, no syndication was coming for it. Like no one wanted it. So they just dropped it and they took the, the few scripts that they had and they produced a comic book of it. Oh, wonderful. I didn't know that. I have it. So if you want to borrow it sometime, you can check it out. Nice. All right, Steve, final thoughts on the film and then we will, um, you know, say things and about things that we do and be very professional. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that, A, I didn't know that part about the comic, so I'm definitely going to seek that out, um, because I, I'm I'm thinking Shutter has Creepshow now, uh, the new series, and we'll, you know, we've talked about that on our on Invasion of the Podcast, we, we'll be talking about the animated special on an upcoming episode, uh, but it's interesting to me that... Uh, the unmade sequel that the script is out there. So, Hey, I, I want to know if that's out there. I would like to, to track that down um, and read it. But also if you have uh, Harrison working on creep show, like I would absolutely love to see him direct an episode of creep show where he gets to take on one of the stories that was in that unmade sequel. That would be amazing. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say just about the film as well, and I, I, I should have started with this, so I apologize, is that one of the things that I think that I love about this movie is, is that this was from a time in my life where I had a friend who was introducing me to a lot of different things that maybe wouldn't have initially piqued my interest. And I'm not talking about this specifically, but 
I think we all have a friend who introduces us to different things that they're into, and it sort of broadens your your view. And while I was at this time very much getting into comics, he was the guy. I had a friend by the name of John who who I saw this with on that day back in 1990 that I referenced at the beginning of the episode. Who who you know he would rent anything you know B slash horror that came out. He was the guy that. You know, I saw Halloween five with in the theater. He was the guy that, you know, I saw pretty much any sort of genre slasher. I saw actually not even slasher. I saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first movie in 1990 with him as well. And I I sort of always think back on those days and how uh, they've sort of formed who I am as a person, you know, either directly or indirectly. And, you this movie will always have a special place in my heart because of that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that this movie is a gem. I hope that people will seek it out if they haven't. Um, it's pretty readily available in a lot of places. And I think if you're a Romero fan, uh, the great thing is, is that, uh, you know, he did record a, a commentary with the director somewhere in, i think the early 2000s um and it's on both the dvd and i believe it's on the new chef factory version as well um so it's great to hear you know since romero's passed to hear him talking about this film and what his take and thoughts were on it as well so all right i know that's a lot that i just threw in there but <laughs> there you go well because you know like that we brought you in for the sex appeal so you got to just fill the stage there that's fine so uh, Terry, uh, final thoughts about the movie, or are you, um, are you have you said your piece? I, I think for the most part, I've uh, I've said my piece, but I will say that if anybody enjoys this film um, or you know is interested in checking it out, uh, get the Blu-ray, get get the the Shout Factory edition of it. Um, they did a terrific job with it. Uh, I think it's well worth the money. And uh, I mean, th- when it comes to anthology storylines, this is kind of the the high art honestly there's some good stories in it and uh i i enjoy watching it every time there's something uh, new i take away from it every time i see it too yeah i would agree with that so yeah this is this is a it's a great movie um and yeah like i said i watched this on amazon for four bucks to rent it was uh hd quality um so he, again yeah buy the physical copy like i i should have i should have owned this movie by now but i have not so that's on me but it's easily available so if people want to check it out four bucks Watch it. it. It's wonderful. And don't have to think too hard about it. It's a breezy like hour and a half or so, like, like an hour, 40 minutes. It, it, it's a lot of fun. So before uh, we talk about what Terry and I are doing next, um, I know Steve had already mentioned in passing that uh, on our show Invasion of the Podcast, we've been doing a Halloween thing uh, all month of watching animated stuff. And we are going to be doing Creep Show has their animated special, which came out today. Um, but we're not covering it till the weekend because of scheduling. Um, and I'm excited to get to this because there's a Stephen King story on there called um, Survivor Type that's really messed up. So I cannot wait to get to this to watch it and talk about it on Invasion of the Podcast. So that's what we're going to be doing. We'll release that episode. If you guys like more anthology talk, th- that's what we're going to be doing. So it's going to be a lot of fun. You can find Steve and I there. It's Invasion of the Podcast. Um, yeah. Uh, and Steve, you do other things too that are worthy of note that like, I think people that would like the show would like that what you do. So I'm going to stop saying words now. You tell people about those things. So yeah, uh, I do a horror webcomic with a friend of mine by the name of Ryan Cassandi. 
You can find it online at the Saturday Night Slasher.com. If you're somebody who wants to buy a physical copy of the comic, you can actually find that at uh, Etsy under our storefront, The Art of the Slash. Well, and your, um, was it Beyond Sunset uh, is an anthology comic you guys put out too, right? Yeah, yeah. We're actually working on a second issue of that. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we did an anthology comic that. Uh, it's called Beyond Sunset. Uh, I would never deign to say that it's uh, equal or of uh, same quality of, of uh, Tales from the Dark Side or Creepshow. But if you're somebody who likes anthology stories, maybe give it a spin. You're the you're the best salesman of yourself, Steve. No, he does great stuff. You guys should support <laughs> it. So. so, Terry, how can people find us and things that we do? All right, folks. We are on Facebook, uh, um, Strange Highways Podcast. Uh, check us out on there. We're posting new pictures and insightful, uh, you know, discussions that we've had about certain things. Um, and we are on Instagram as well at Strange Highways Podcast. Um, we're posting a bunch of goofy stuff on there as well. So if you're not really interested in the Facebook anymore, come check us out on Instagram or do both. You could do that. Why not? Yeah, it could be two things. And also, wherever you guys find your podcast, rate and review us would be greatly appreciated. If you enjoy this conversation, uh, yeah, the more the merrier. So, uh, yeah, so Steve, again, thank you for being on the show. This is, I mean, you know, we, you and I talk once a week. We already have a love fest, but it was just great to have a love fest with also Terry as well. So, fun, fun talk. And it's always a good time to get you in talking about scary movies. So, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you guys for having me. And I hope we get to have Terry on the show sometime soon. Yeah, then then that way we could all work on our, our um yeah, we could just we could work on our awkward pauses. That would be great. So, um yeah, so uh what's going to happen is that we're taking a week off. We're going to enjoy the Halloween weekend. Uh we'll be back um like the second week of November. Uh we'll be getting back to our twilight zoning. Um we're going to actually be covering season 5, uh episode 4. Uh it is called a kind of stopwatch. Sorry, a kind of a stopwatch. And I have Sterling uh, teasing that right now. And now, Mr. Serling. Next time on The Twilight Zone, we probe into the element of time and present a very oddball opus entitled A Kind of a Stopwatch. We tell the story of a man, a stopwatch, and an incredible deviation from the norm. Said norm being the usual 24-hour day, said deviation involving what happens when a stopwatch is pushed and everything stops, not just time. To titillate and intrigue, A Kind of a Stopwatch, next on Twilight Zone. Did I say Sterling? I think I said Mr. Sterling. I, I, anyway... It's been a night. It's been a night. So, uh, yeah, a kind of a stopwatch next week, or sorry, two weeks from now. I uh, have a very happy and safe Halloween. Eat a bunch of candy, watch a bunch of cool movies, and um, uh, don't let cats near your mouth. That's what I'll say. And don't break your vowel. agents how'd they get so successful they died 